Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, and my co-host here, filling in for Dave Pop, which is Rob Gay. Rob, thank you for joining us. It's good. Try to channel my inner Dave there. Your inner Dave, yes. <laughs> you, you be careful by saying that, because do you really want to be your inner Dave? Anyways, the point is we've got a great show today. I really want to talk about a few things. You and I had a great chat on Friday about some new government policies mm -hmm. that have come out, interest... Uh, no GST on on yeah. some um, buildings for for rental. Uh, the grocery store business has now been under a little bit of heat, mm -hmm. right? Uh, we'll have to see what they're going to keep on the shelf, pun intended, <laughs> right? And then we've also want to talk about this interest rates and recession, and we actually have a different view. Higher interest rates are a good thing. Let me say that one more time. Higher interest rates are a good thing. We're going to bring a professional portfolio manager who's actually pounding the table saying, this is a good thing. Let's take a look at the opportunity. So we're going to definitely have a great show today. Um, there were some key economic numbers and key points that came out this week oh. in the markets. Yeah, you, you're, you're exhaling quite a bit here. <laughs> <laughs> what did you see this week that there caught your a, attention? Yeah, it was, uh, so I covered half the week. Dave passed that off to me on the uh, big news days. So a ton of news came out midweek here. We had ECB raise their interest rates, 25 basis points come right. out and say that that's probably the end. It's going to be a pause. We can touch on that in a second yep. because there are certain countries in Europe that are already in recession. So Correct. we'll talk about that. On the U.S. side, we had a ton of economic data come in. We had PPI, so the Purchasers Index. We also had retail sales, both up more than analysts expected. So let's break it down. Let's start in, in uh, the U.S. and in Canada. When you see these numbers have come out, Purchasers Index, retail sales, mm -hmm. what is it basically giving a hint on what's happening? So I looked at the headline numbers are always up right now, right? And and we always have to look at the core numbers, breakout, some of these volatile numbers. Gasoline was the headline. It is a lot higher month over month. So it was the uh, it was the upside, right? So if you strip that out, yeah, there wasn't a huge gain, and it is actually starting to slow. You're, you're speaking of producers' prices. Mm -hmm. Now let's. Just make the, the, the connection properly. Producers' prices go down. What they sell for can also go, go down, down, and that would actually slow down inflation. So hint one, hint two. However, retail sales, better than expected. Still strong. The consumer is still spending, especially in the U.S. Resilient is the yeah. word, and it was it's caught many by surprise. Um if you are in the Calgary area, for example, pick a Wednesday night. Mm -hmm. Not a very exciting night. If I said Wednesday night, go to a restaurant. <laughs> people are still have that resiliency to spend. It, it's people are spending money still. It's crazy. But Trying. is it crazy? We talk about a five, six percent unemployment rate. I'm using broad numbers here. That means 94% are employed. Mm -hmm. What are they going to do? Stay at home? Mm -hmm. They may not spend as much on everything. We're seeing the shift of behavior, but they're still spending. Yeah. So it's got to happen. Retail sales, people are still buying stuff. Yeah. So that's, that's a good thing for the economy. 
Now you're hearing recession, soft landing, a mild recession, all these different terminology. But what caught us was what happened in Europe. Mm-hmm. European Central Bank raised interest rates. Yep. But said, pretty much, we're done. Yeah. Very bold for a central bank to say we're done. Market didn't move on the interest rate hike. It was the commentary in the Q&A to Christine Lagarde afterwards. And and she basically came out and said, we are done. We're not going to put the countries more in recession. This is the first time I've heard the central bank out of Europe or any major, with exception to Japan, any major uh, central banker focusing on the recession Mm -hmm. versus focusing on inflation. You've got two outcomes, higher inflation or a a deeper recession. And right now, the European Central Bank is yielding to a deeper recession. They want to prevent that from happening. So what does that mean for decisions in North America here going forward? Because we have one coming up here next week. Right. And the, the what are we at? Ninety five percent right? that they're going to pause here next week. That's pretty much baked in now. Yeah. So the market is basically predicting that there's going to be a pause. Do you think that the central bankers were saying we're done? <laughs> I don't think that's good policy. I agree. I don't think a central banker should today with interest with inflation above their target say we're done mm-hmm. because that changes the mindset, and also ruins the credibility of the central bank. Because they were saying, we're going to 2%, we're going to 2%. Or they say, psych, just kidding. We're not going to 2%. That that credibility has already been tarnished. It's lost to some. You're going to do it again? So I don't think they're going to say we're done. I think they're going to say we're pausing, and we're taking a look, some of the data. If they pause. Mm -hmm. If they pause. And so... These are the things that are going to come out of this. I think for um, people who are trying to look at the markets, I'm going to say it once and, and, and I'm going to say it uh, this time that people should really listen to this piece. Stop focusing on the economic headline numbers and start looking at the businesses that you're investing in in the market. Mm-hmm. We talk about the stock market. They talk about indexes. They talk. It's just basic. Well, then, yeah, you're going to do whatever the economy does to some degree. But if you start getting stock specific, it looks a lot more attractive in my point of view. Well, there's opportunities, right? I so think I, so. I'll cover what we saw, what else we saw this week, Rich, yeah. was IPOs. Uh-huh. There was a big one that came, uh, SoftBank's Arm Holdings, right? This is a chip maker out of the UK. Way oversubscribed, meaning more people were putting money at this stock then was issued out as the initial public offering, which then just shoots up the price. Mm-hmm. So it's, well, wait a minute. If we're going into a recession or a slowdown in the economy, why would anybody want to buy a technology company higher risk. with higher interest rates, higher risk, and no proof of growth? <laughs> Appetite. Tell us more about that. There has not been a major influx of IPOs for the last two years, right? Very little. Rising interest rates, geopolitical risk, lot companies saying, no, it's not a good time to go to the market to try and generate capital. Very interesting. Yes. Next week, a company that I've used quite a bit, 
<laughs> will be doing their initial public offering called Instacart. I'm curious to see this kind of a company. Here's how I look at, at what's come, what's done well during the pandemic and will it continue to do well? Mm -hmm. And let's pick on some of these alternative ways to consume businesses and Instacart, Uber, whatever it may be. They have to have a large economy of scale. We're seeing a lot of these smaller businesses that were trying to do it through the pandemic. Now they're, they're basically being bought out or they're out mm -hmm. of the business completely. But what's gonna be interesting with the market is gonna see how do they take a company like Instacart? How do they compare it to a company like Uber who's more than just a delivery business or a ride share business? How do you look at these companies and can you really compare them? Instacart has some opportunities. But I think what's gonna end up happening is the biggest concern that retailers have is what's called the last mile. How do they get the, the product to your home? Mm -hmm. And if you look at Walmart, Amazon, let's take the grocery chains in Canada, mm -hmm. let's take some of the retail companies in Canada, pizza companies, they're gonna have their own delivery service. Why should they give a percentage of their profit to other companies to do it for them, yeah. as long as they can build the infrastructure? So it's gonna be interesting. If I talk to small, mid-sized private corporations, it's too expensive. We're not gonna use it. Hmm. Hmm. So the shift of everybody wants to work from home, changing. Everybody going to, we're gonna just buy products online and get shipped to our door, changing. It's very interesting how the economy is moving and adjusting to what's the new normal post-pandemic, um, and we're going to see what comes out of it. Uh, Rob, headline news story here. You ready for this? Ready. Inflation is not what you think it is, is during retirement. What? Yeah. So let me give you the, the, the concern that many people have. <laughs> A lot of people are saying, oh, look at these inflation numbers, five, six, seven, make up your number, whatever number it is. And it's gonna take off like that forever. And as and I retire, I'm on a fixed income or I've got a certain amount of capital that I gotta spend for the rest of my life. There's no way that I can do this or there's a big challenge, but I think the data is different. Mm -hmm. And so we wanna bring in our upcoming guest right now, Fred uh, Vitisse. He's the former chief actuary and author of Retirement Income for Life. Fred, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. Hi guys. Okay, so the article that you put in the Globe and Mail talks about um, about income needs and how it not necessarily always rises with inflation. So this is a shocker for many. Walk us through what your what your analysis is. Well, it shouldn't be a shocker for anybody, really. Uh, first of all, um, a guy called uh, Jeffrey Calvert wrote a book in uh, a Canadian book back in 1977 that talked about this very phenomenon about how people do spend less, especially on durable goods and such as they get older. So that was known. I, I knew this when I was like 15 years old. I had a grandmother who came over from the old country who had virtually no income, but she never had any, any needs. As a matter of fact, she was still giving us cash gifts, even though by, by government uh, standards or benchmarks, she would have been uh, considered to be dirt poor. Uh, but there was, there was no, no problem there in terms of, uh, of that. Then I saw that with my own parents as they, as they got older that they stopped buying cars. My father easily had the money to buy a new car every couple of years, but he kept the same old uh, Audi for like 15, 20 years. Um, they stopped buying durable goods. I think last time we, we bought a sofa was in the 1960s. 
uh, and so on. But so I saw that just in terms of my own personal experience. Uh, that isn't what I based the book on, though. Uh, there were a various, there were a number of studies. Uh, for example, there was a study done in uh, Germany by someone called Borsch Supan. And uh, anyways, in that study, he looked at 40,000 households and he looked at how assets were being drawn down in retirement. And what was happening in the 1960s, in their 60s, was what he expected to be happening, that the assets were slowly drawing down and so their balances were getting a little smaller because they were spending the money. And then something surprising happened between ages 70 and 75. Instead of the assets drawing down further, suddenly their, their asset balances started to grow, their account balances started growing. Um, and they tried to figure out what was going on. They just found people were starting to spend less money once they reached uh, somewhere in that, in that ballpark between 70 and 75. Um, so they studied that further and they concluded that uh, the reasons for it were because people either had less ability to spend money because they were, they were less mobile than they were when they were younger or less interest. Maybe they, someone lost a spouse and were no longer really interested in uh, exotic travel, things like that. Um, so that's what they found. Uh, looking at Canada, Malcolm Hamilton, uh, probably our best actuary in the past uh, couple of generations, uh, had done a study about 25 years ago where he sifted through uh, data from uh, Stats Canada. Very difficult to get through, by the way. He had to, he had to uh, go through quite a few hoops to get this data. But what it showed was that the uh, um, amount of money that uh, uh, that seniors were giving away as cash gifts was a very substantial amount. Uh, don't have the number, exact numbers in front of me, but it was like 20% of their of their money they were giving away as cash gifts when they were 70 in their 70s. That when they were in their 80s, they were giving away even more. Once again, it's kind of suggesting that they weren't spending all their money because they didn't really feel like spending all their money. Then there were other studies done. I mean, I, and they all showed uh, virtually the same thing. There was a Swedish study done that showed this. There was uh, one, a very extensive one done in, in, uh, in the UK uh, by Brancati. And once again, it showed um, that, that people at all income levels were spending less money as they got older. Uh, there was a big drop between ages 60 and, and, and age 80. And, and, uh, and, they, and they asked people if it was because they were constrained, they didn't feel they could spend the money. They just, uh, they, they indicated no in general, that they just didn't feel like spending the money. So, um, and as a result of all that, uh, I, and I, I looked at many different studies and, and Americans have come up with a bunch of them to show what the um, percentage reduction would be. And I, I roughly worked it out that uh, here's what happens. In your 60s, your spending does keep up with inflation. In your 70s, it's less than inflation by about 1% a year. So in real terms, your spending is dropping by 1% a year. And then in your 80s, it's dropping by about 2% per year. And then in your 90s, all of a sudden, it starts uh, keeping up with inflation again. At that point in time, you're probably under long-term care or you have a personal support worker and you're, uh, you're beholden to somebody else to, to meet your needs. So that's kind of, and that's what I based my book, Retirement Income for Life on. Yeah, no, I think it's amazing data because, I mean, when we are talking with clients and going through on their spending habits through through their journey of retirement, it, it changes as well. So I think that's uh, incredibly interesting. And I think that given the concerns of inflation right now with a lot of people and, and continued inflation, we're starting to see cracks in that, but it's still at the grocery stores and in people's minds. How should people be handling their retirement income based on the current fears? 
Well, I have to admit, I, like everybody else, thought that inflation was pretty much dead. Um, uh, the um, Bank of Canada uh, implemented their 2% target back in the early 1990s, and then since then, inflation has kind of hovered around the 2% level, sometimes even less than that. Um, and I thought that's just how it's always going to be. What I didn't count on was a, uh, a pandemic. And I guess it could have been anything else. It could have been some other major crisis or black swan event, as they call them. Uh, but it was the uh, pandemic, and, and the government spent huge amounts of money, as we know. And not only Canada, Canadian, but other governments did. And we're having this problem in de developed countries around the world, where now that the large amounts, they were spending large amounts that they didn't have, that it's uh, kicked up inflation everywhere. Uh, to, uh, I guess it spiked at around the 8 or 9% level, which we hadn't seen since the uh, late uh, 1980s. Um, so what it means to me is that if it happened now, it can happen again. It can happen. It may not, won't be because of COVID. It'll be because of something else that we can't even predict. It might be in five years' time or 10 years' time. But what it means is that if you can maximize your income that is inflation protected uh, without uh, too much cost, like the cost of insurance, then you should do so. And by that, that means, for example, that if you can start your CPP pension at age 70 instead of 65 or 60, you should do so because it would be that much greater and it is fully inflation protected. If you can start, you decompose your OAS. I, I was never keen on postponing OAS because the bump isn't quite as great as with OAS as it is with uh, CPP, but it's still substantial. It's 36% more at 70 versus 65. And if you can do that as well, then you should do so because once again, it's fully inflation protected. So anything that uh, gives you inflation protection is, is a good thing as far as I'm concerned, as long as the cost isn't too great. Fred, we gotta leave it there. Thank you so much for uh, letting us know about your thoughts, the, the research that you've done, uh, and the ideas of you know maximizing your inflation protection along the way. Thank you very much for joining us today. Okay, you're quite welcome, my, my pleasure. We've uh, we just talked about what's happening in the markets this mm -hmm. week, an IPO that comes out. Lots going on. And still people are talking about these two concerns. We have the European Central Bank talking about interest rates. Uh, we're hearing more and more conversation. Are they going to pause? Are they going to raise interest rates? What's going to happen in North America? With all the conversation of interest rates and recession, mm -hmm. Let's get a viewpoint from someone who looks at things globally, not just within our own geographical location that we're in. And uh, we're joined by uh, Derek Skumarowski, a portfolio manager at EdgePoint Portfolios. Now we work with EdgePoint uh, very closely. We've, been, we've had a long-term relationship with them. They've been a good sounding board for us and they are great at what they do. So they've got some things that they're doing right. How do they figure this stuff out? The same things that we try to figure out in our, our business as portfolio managers and what the average uh, listener is doing. Derek, welcome to the show. Thank you guys very much for having me. All right, let's go right down the, the first question. People often talk about the consequences of higher interest rates and the negative impact they have on investors and the economy. But do you think investors should look at today's higher interest rates through maybe a different lens? Yeah, and this is going to be a controversial take, but a uh, bit of a news flash investors should want higher interest rates like it is as long as you have not made a silly bet that interest rates would stay low forever it's the best thing that could happen to your go forward returns if you think about the economy and the impact of higher interest rates interest rates have moved higher for sure and a lot of people 
are paying that higher interest amount. Uh, but for every interest payment, there's somebody else on the receiving end. A lot of people will have taken out a student loan or car loan or mortgage in the past, and they've had higher interest rates. In that case, that interest payment goes to the bank, who then has to pass it on to depositors or savers. So higher interest rates are painful for borrowers, absolutely, but they benefit savers. And the same thing goes for investment markets. If you think about the past 10 or 20 years, it was a great time to be a borrower. If you were a stockholder in a company that borrowed a lot of debt or had a lot of debt outstanding, or if you were a real estate investor, low interest rates were a huge tailwind to your returns, but they absolutely punished lenders. And finally, for the first time in 10 years, that relationship is changing. If you are a lender today, you are much better off and your go for returns have completely changed. People forget that bonds, as an example, used to offer returns over the long term that were competitive with equities. People have thought that stocks were the only game in town for a very long time now. And I think we all need to start to rethink that. Stocks, as an example, are oftentimes borrowers. When we're working at EdgePoint, we are spend our day studying businesses. If we see a future in a business that other people don't see, we can become an owner in that business by buying the stock. However, we can also become a lender to that business. And when we buy bonds, we think of ourselves as just lending money to companies so we can apply our very same approach. But instead of becoming a business owner, we can become a lender. And in today's interest rate environment, it has never been a better time, not in my career, to be a lender. So when you look at the companies, and here's where part of the problem happens in the equity market. There's too many pundits that come out and start speaking of the following. Interest rates are going, PE ratios are too high. They always focus on the price to earnings ratio. We don't hear much of other metrics being utilized. Um, and so then they start saying that the stocks have to go down. On the other side, they're saying bond rates are gonna be fine at this level, but how long can they continue? Future interest rates are gonna be lower. So, you know, you're gonna get the best for you that you can today because tomorrow, let's say two, three years down the road, interest rates are gonna be lower. How do you handle those, that, those types of, I call them noise, uh, where you start talking about the equity side where people are saying interest rates are too high, PE ratios are out of whack, therefore the value of companies need to drop. And on the flip side, on the bond market, it's good for now, but it's not going to be good for a long term. You're absolutely right. Like, like we, and we call them prognosticators. <laughs> Everybody loves a forecast, but um, it, it's completely true. 12 months ago, I think you had 60% of economists predicting a recession. And we have stock markets hitting new highs. We've even went like, I mean, a 500 basis point move or a 5% move in the short end of the yield curve was a very fast move. We went through a banking crisis. No one would have predicted that through all of that, we've had an economy as strong as it is and a stock market as strong as it is. The truth is these forecasts don't help anyone, right? They're just forecasts. Nobody knows the direction of the economy. Nobody knows the direction of interest rates. We know that sometime in the future, there will be another recession. Every time we make an investment decision, we assume that we might be going through a recession tomorrow. That's part of our job. We stress test the businesses that we're buying in our equity portfolios or that we're lending to in our credit portfolios 
for what they are going to look like through a recession. If the recession happens in the next 12 months, you'll wish you hadn't invested today, but you don't know that we're gonna go through a recession in the next 12 months. If the recession doesn't happen for 10 years, you're gonna make a boatload of money between now and 10 years from now when we ultimately do go through that recession. Recessions are a part of life. You have to learn to live through them. There are many, many businesses out there that, and some of them might struggle if we go through our re a recession. Our job is to avoid those. And if we are any good at our job, we can go through a recession, survive through the other side and earn a pleasing return regardless. For the investor, like just in, going back to the opportunity today as a lender and particularly in corporate bonds, if you bought the lowest rated bucket of corporate bonds on December 31st of 2007, you just bought the high yield index in the US and held it for the next three years. So December 31st of 2007, right before the global financial crisis over the next 10, next three years, despite experiencing some volatility, you actually earned an annualized return above 10%, 10% through the global financial crisis. So again, that's the worst timing you could possibly have right on the brink of the deepest recession we've had in a hundred years and you earn a 10% annualized return. So again, thinking about today's environment, particularly from the mindset of a lender, you're senior in the capital structure, you're now in a position to earn rates of return that are on par and as attractive as equity returns have been historically, even if we do go through a recession, our job is to take advantage of that and earn it an attractive return regardless. The last 12 months in our credit portfolios and one of the best ways I think in my mind to play offense in this environment is our high conviction concentrated high yield portfolio. It's an opportunistic credit portfolio. We have a universe of 7,000 companies that we have to choose from to lend to and we're trying to build a portfolio designed to be as attractive as possible with 40 to 50. So 40 to 50 in a universe of 7,000, we need to say this company can pay us our money back. In today's environment, in the last 12 months, we found 22 new ideas in the portfolio, earning a return of close to 10% across seven different industries. So it's more diverse and more attractive than anything we've been able to put together, again, in my career, um, and certainly in a very, very long time. It is a great time to play offense as a lender in today's environment. That doesn't mean it'll be a perfectly smooth ride, but any volatility we get along the way is nothing but an opportunity, and that's where I have my money. Derek, for the last 10 years, I've been very happy being the equity guy on the mm -hmm. team, the growth guy on the team. Uh, this is now Dave, if he was here, Dave Popovich, who's been the more the fixed income guy. He's been jumping up and down, stretching out, because he knows this is gonna be a good opportunity from his perspective. We've been chatting with you and your team about these opportunities. I think you've, you've nailed it quite well. We wanna thank you for joining us today. Uh, what great insight. I think people need to know that forecasts are just forecasts, but the reality is the reality. And, and thank you for bringing us reality today. Thank you guys very much for having me. There's no place I'd rather be. We've been joined by Derek uh, Skumarowski, Portfolio Manager of EdgePoint Portfolios. The government mm -hmm. may be messing around with your retirement. <laughs> They're trying different programs. And let me tee this one up for you. Yeah. Okay. We have a central bank 
who's saying we want to try to bring inflation down to 2%. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, in reality, there are big concerns about a housing issue in this country. There are issues about inflation mm -hmm. in this country. And the federal government is trying to do um, some sort of, or try to build some programs to assist in this manner. And let's take a look at the two parts. One is the whole no GST for builders who are, that's supposed to help, for builders for rental, uh, mm -hmm. rental uh, buildings. Okay, that's supposed to help on costs and keep rents lower. I have a hard time understanding that if you take out a cost, that's gonna get flowed through right to the, mm -hmm. the end user. I have a hard time understanding mm -hmm. that. So they're playing with GST. Okay, let me throw the same thing about GST. If inflation is high and you want goods to be cheaper, shouldn't you just get rid of the GST? <laughs> Temporarily. <laughs> it's an idea, it's an idea. I'm not saying that's the, that's the solution, but you, you're trying to make things more affordable by saying we're gonna get rid of the GST in this case, but we're not gonna get rid yeah, of the yeah. GST in other cases. Instead, those companies who are providing the product and service that is too expensive for many Canadians, we're gonna give you a profit tax, a higher tax, and this, this month, it's the grocery stores yep. that are put in the spotlight the flavor of the week <laughs> and they've put stuff out there saying okay these these companies are making more and more profit mm -hmm. you you reported mm -hmm. on empire mm -hmm. and they're making more profit even though they're going through some issues with their their staff in british columbia mm -hmm. and people are saying it's getting too expensive so yep. the government wants to step in and try to figure out how do we make grocery prices cheaper i know tax the profits it's very interesting. <laughs> it was an interesting one to to report on because, um, right, it, Empire was the the latest one, right, to to come out with their results. And yes, there's still profit there. Yes, there's still profit with all of them. But here's what the government has now trying to do: the five major heads of all the grocers here in Canada, including Costco and Walmart. The heads are supposed to come up with their own program of how they're going to make grocery prices lower by October 9th, or they may impose the excess tax after that point. Okay. So it's been put back on the companies. Yeah, so we don't know the solution, you guys figure out the solution, otherwise we're gonna tax you because you don't come up with a solution. Mm. Okay, that's, that's an idea. Mm -hmm. Okay. If I was running a business that the government said to me, if you, if you don't come up with a solution to lower your price per, for the product, I'm gonna tax you for your mm. excess profits. And we'll define the word excess based upon what the federal government's saying is excess. Okay, so if I'm a retailer and I have 300 different types of mac and cheese, mm -hmm. pasta, what's gonna give my company, my shareholders, the people who put their capital at risk on, on this business, their profit, and still lower the cost? You get rid of choice and you provide your own product. That's one example. Mm -hmm. We've heard of all the major grocery chains that have their own brand. Why would I put more choice out there if they're not competing on price? Because mm -hmm. everybody's kind of got this problem of it's costing too much. 
And they all got to make a profit. To the stakeholders, to the shareholders, to the investors. It's going to be the highest margin. So let's let's kind of break this down. I've learned a lot about this working and in, in researching retail companies. Okay. The, the best form of a company to make a profit, the most healthiest profit, is if you're the manufacturer and distributor of your own product versus just the retailer of someone else's product. Control, yeah. Because there's so much marginal profit between that. So let's remove a whole bunch of competitors off my shelf. Let's lower my price and I can still make things cheaper to keep the, the government happy. I can drop prices by 10% if I get rid of choice. Now it's a healthy balance. Consumers will say I have no much choice in this store versus that store. So I'm going to go there. It's going to happen. But if, if these grocery chains start thinking about this, you're hurting the consumer. <laughs> You're not helping the consumer. It's not just a cost issue. Yeah. There's value behind this. Or I can do shrink inflation. I can have the same mac and cheese box by my competitor, just in a smaller box for a cheaper price. Well, and opening up the control too, right, of competitors, right? That was another part of this program was the geographic control that some of these big grocers have to no competitors in that area. Correct. They're trying to fight them. For smaller people trying to get into this space or or compete, it's going to be tough in this environment. It's going to be tough. And so in one side, the central bank wants to raise interest rates so that it slows down the economy. On the other side, the government's looking for controlling the pricing mm -hmm. so it becomes affordable. Okay, so they're both kind of aligned there. But in the back door... Provincial and federal governments are writing checks to help people as well so they can they can keep up with inflation. How does that all work together? And, and I have a concern with this because is it a country you really want to invest in? Hmm. As a portfolio manager, I look at what the government policies are and where's the best opportunities. In Canada, I believe there are some companies worth investing in. Mm -hmm. I don't believe relative to other countries, that Canada is the place to be. Mm -hmm. And those companies that you invest in that are Canadian, you also look for They're making else. more money outside of Canada <laughs> than ever before. Yep. It's interesting that they are Canadian domiciled, but they're not just Canadian serving. So that's that just <laughs> tells you how confident I am that this country is a place to invest. Then I look at I look at where's money flowing? Mm -hmm. Capital can move anywhere around the world very easily. Okay, where's the money flowing? Mexico, which I've been calling the biggest threat to Canada before the NAFTA agreement was re renegotiated. I said, watch out for Mexico. They're our biggest threat, not the US. Hmm. More capital, more businesses, a 40% increase in the amount of foreign companies coming in to do business in Mexico is happening. I don't hear 40% of foreign companies coming into Canada to do business. GDP growth, right? As a percentage? It is unbelievable what's happening. So where's capital flowing? Canada's not in the top 10. 
same people trying to control our groceries. So <laughs> we need to look at how, as an investor, do not, this is my biggest tip for the day, do not look at the country on the investment, look at the investment. Focus on the investment. Is that company able to do more than just be the, the output of what the local economy, the country's economy is? That's where I think we're headed. That's where I think there's an opportunity. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have more conversation about this at our upcoming seminar, talking about the opportunities that are out there and how we can help grow your portfolio through your retirement so you can live the lifestyle that you want. When is that seminar, Rob? We got it coming up Tuesday, September 26, 7 p.m. This will be in person at the Care or the Hamptons Golf Club. Go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. On behalf of Rob and myself, I want to thank you for joining us today. You've been watching More Than Money on QR Calgary. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.